0: This is Repatterning. I'm Tom.
1: Hi, I'm Kata. Today we're talking with Sasha Engelmann. Sasha is a London-based geographer exploring interdisciplinary, feminist and creative approaches to environmental knowledge making. This is also the first time that we have had a talk over Zoom rather than in person. So it sounds a little bit different to the other talks that we've done.
0: And in our talk, we'll be talking about satellites and oracles, radio and air, Sustainability and choices, and sitting with the compromises. Uh, enjoy.
2: So, okay. hi and welcome. <laughs> hi, thanks for uh-huh. having me.
0: Um, maybe we can uh, start by getting the getting the satellites out of the way straight away. <laughs>
2: There are many satellites. There sure are. Yeah. Th- tell us about satellites that
1: are that that wake up again.
2: Yeah. So I know you have worked on a a, a satellite called Les, or Less One that was um was it launched in the 60s and then it re kind of yeah. woke up again in the 21st century. It's an amazing yeah. story. Do you want to say a little bit about it?
0: Sure. I think we've we've mentioned it in a couple of other of the talks that we've done. But yeah, the basic idea was that we found out about this uh, satellite that seemingly kind of was resurrected after kind of almost half a century or so of of silence, or so we think, or perhaps just of giving signals that nobody was hearing. Um, and uh, yeah, it was a very kind of, uh, the fact that it, was resurrected was something that i think we found like a very poetic prompt Uh, and uh yeah i think that sort of it overlaps with uh, a lot of the things that you're you've been busy with and you've been interested in
2: yeah so i've done a lot of work with noaa satellites um noaa satellites are a, a fleet or a family of satellites operated by the U.S. government through the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or Mm. NOAA. Um, NOAA was formed in 1970 and so for over 50 years has been launching Earth observation and um, weather satellites to image Earth's surface and to provide environmental data. Um, I'm currently working on an article actually about the origins of NOAA, as an earth imaging system. And there's, I'm getting fascinating things in the NOAA archive around how NOAA's initial and still contemporary um, aims are really tied up with this idea of terra and aqua and air nullius, which is the idea that land, ocean, and air are unmapped or blank before the US uh-huh. government or a settler colonial state comes in to document and monitor it. Um, so NOAA, NOAA initially was was very much established to make an atmosphere out of the blankness of the atmosphere for mm. the purposes of U.S. settler expansion um, and kind of uh, dominance of North America. Um, long story short, there was a satellite called NOAA-2 launched in 1972. So two years after NOAA was born and NOAA-2 was active until 1975, when it was decommissioned after some errors happened on its sensors and um, continued to orbit the Earth in what's called a graveyard orbit, which is a strange thing that we know in satellite sensing systems where satellites continue to orbit, but they're, um, for all intents and purposes, sort of dead or not mm. transmitting, um, like a kind of family of ghosts. And it then turned out in early 2021, a radio amateur discovered that NOAA 2 was then transmitting again mm. and because NOAA 2 originally was meant to transmit images of the earth um, it is now again transmitting images but very abstract images that are they look like kind of blocks of white and gray and black um, and it is still unclear what they mean but I like to think that NOAA 2 is a kind of oracle so it was alive during the acceleration of the climate crisis um, it was, uh, it was launched in the kind of important year of 1972 when the Club of Rome was happening and founded that kind of uh, proclaimed that climate change was happening on a global scale. Mm. And then as a ghost or as a zombie, you know, maybe it like witnessed the, um, the increasing speed of the climate crisis and now has woken up in 2021 to remind us, uh, or to tell us that we need to get our act together. So, um so, so NOAA 2 is a is a kind of unlikely Oracle or a zombie satellite that I've thought a lot about with my collaborator Sophie Dyer on a project called Open Weather. And mm. Open Weather is a is a kind of feminist artistic experiment in imaging and imagining the Earth and its weather systems using DIY radio amateur tools. Um so we got, of course, very interested in NOAA's satellite fleet. Mm. Wow. And so you can um
1: you can receive the the images that the satellite is sending.
2: Yeah, so very much like what I understand you were doing with Less One um, on the roof of LACMA, we use DIY radio antennas, uh one of which I actually have on my desk at home. Oh, um cool, we right? use a variety of antennas, um mostly ones that we can access cheaply and make ourselves. Um we use radio antennas, we use um software-defined radio. Um, So different free or inexpensive softwares that allow us to listen to the radio spectrum. And we use different image decoding softwares that allow us to translate the sound, the kind of radiophonic sound that these NOAA satellites are sending to Earth into images. Um, Since the 19, gosh, I think since the 1960s, um, NOAA NOAA was um, using what's called a direct readout service. So, um, or what's also called automatic picture transmission. So it's a sort of low resolution, um, image transmission via radio waves that come from orbiting satellites to Earth's surface. And we're always the kind of idea behind it was that these. Transmissions could be received by anyone. So any citizen ground station in reality in the 1960s and 70s, only of course, extremely rich people or scientific institutions could realistically receive these images. But now with advancements in kind of DIY software defined radio, um, it becomes more accessible. So we are capitalizing on a archaic image transmission format. Mm. That has basically not changed very much since the 1960s to create alternative images of Earth and its weather with uh, actually almost 100 people who are now part of open weather around the world. Open weather has several different dimensions. So one dimension is um, what we call critical frameworks, which are which are another word for artworks, but we don't somehow like the word artworks because um, we don't consider ourselves a really an artistic project. I can talk about that more later. Um, but we have critical frameworks, which are kind of combinations of feminist ideas and principles and values with creative practice-based methods from performance to uh, online kind of media art um, to poetry. And we um, propose, for example, we have one performance called the Satellite Seance, where we use the archive of Anton Mesmer, who was an important figure in the seance movement. So kind of the idea that one could listen to the voices of dead people. Um, uh And so we use kind of uh, figments from that archive to combine with a live satellite image decoding event to propose that event as a otherworldly ritual. And we treat the satellite as a medium. Mm. Um So that would be an example of a performance, but we also do workshops. So we uh, have a series of what we call DIY satellite ground station workshops. There have been seven so far um, where we teach a group of people over one or two days how to make their own DIY satellite ground stations with free or inexpensive radio technologies, but also specifically and very importantly, how to think about Earth observation and radio through feminist perspectives, how to trouble ideas of the earth from this God's eye perspective and how to think about alternative grammars for earth imaging and dealing with radio. Mm. Um, and then third, through, oh yeah, third, we've also kind of uh, published many how to guides. So we've made a lot of like kind of open source, easily accessible how to guides for setting up DIY satellite ground stations available online. Um, And through the workshops and the how-to guides, we've kind of witnessed an accidental meshwork of people begin to form around the world. So people from Buenos Aires to Mumbai to Kinshasa to London to Seattle to Paris, all over the world, who have either replicated our guides or done a workshop and have their own ground stations. And we activate this um, planetary network on days that we call now casts, where we invite everybody to capture their own satellite images around the world. And we composite or stitch these images together into planetary kind of fragmentary and glitchy global maps of weather on particular days. So that last happened on the first day of COP26 in Glasgow, which was October 31st last year. And we made what we called a now cast for COP26 on that day. So to summarize open weather is both a kind of hybrid art science project. It's both a pedagogical and kind of um, resource driven project and also a mesh work or network building project. Although we're very sensitive about like calling it a network or a community, given how much those words are overused. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: A mesh work is uh, an interesting way of uh, trying to frame this, I suppose, in that it's uh there are lots of things that refer to themselves as a community where there can be criticisms made of exactly who has the power and uh, who makes the decisions, right?
2: Exactly. And I think we are, we're critical of ideas of community because um, we feel like that word has been over-mobilized both in arts context and in an uh, academic context to try to like make certain kinds of things look more shiny um, when in reality, they are not um, like collectively driven or grounded in actual community practices. Um, however, we're also thinking a lot with ideas about um, feminist infrastructures and network building in a feminist mode. So people like Astrid Nimanis and, and Jennifer May Hamilton and Tessa Sattel who've written about how, you know, what if we thought about infrastructure or network building, not as being not as that meaning like, oh, you must have people in a room together. Every week, like for three hours, or you must have a Slack channel or you must have a group WhatsApp chat. And rather, what if we could think about fleeting encounters between relative strangers and mm. kind of stranger intimacies across planetary scales as also being as politically important and valid as a network as mm. more traditional senses? So we're, we're kind of complicating the idea of network in, in both of those ways.
0: Yeah, it also, I suppose, kind of overlaps a little bit with this idea of uh, radio as uh, accidental community or as the, the potential machinery for accidental community through sort of shared listenership. Or I suppose in this case also shared contribution, right? That it's not just reception but also transmission.
2: Yes, yes, totally. Although we don't as a as a as Oak Mother, we don't really transmit. Um but you're right, I think the kind of history of radio and radio amateurism as being about Transmitting and being about, uh, you know, amateur radio operators meaning mm-hmm. on air and exchanging call signs over planetary distances. And, um, yeah, as a, as a licensed radio amateur, I've spent many a dark night listening to, uh, transmissions from all over the world <laughs> and recording them and having the best time. So yeah, I think there is something about like this ephemerality and planetary uh collectivization that's possible through radio that is really not that possible with other kinds of whether social media or other kinds of uh, technologies Mm. have you also experienced that with radio about the capacity to make kind of collective spaces or like listening spheres uh like do you work with that kind of aspect of radio
0: i think the, the honest short answer is not, is no, <laughs> in that like, basically the stuff that we have done that has involved radio and, you know, satellite signals and related ideas has mostly been fairly personal and just linked with the two of us figuring out, you know, a series of very nerdy questions about how to make it all work. Um, but yeah. Uh, it is something where the the overlap that we've had with uh like the related communities has mostly involved things like getting in touch with you know ham radio groups in berlin and stuff like that where it yeah is it it's it's in its own way kind of a glimpse into a totally different world you know of like without wanting to be too presumptuous about it all like a bunch of middle aged white Germans who are very into talking men. about particular, uh, yeah, white German men who are talking about amplifiers for hours and hours.
2: Exactly. And then, of course, we got more into the histories of feminist pirate radio, feminist radio practices, where for decades and decades and decades, women and non binary. People were, for example, going to the top of housing estates in South London and using handheld antennas and very kind of, um, manually operated, um, local, uh, gear to transmit mm-hmm. pirate radio broadcasts over a local area. Um, and, you know, everything from like Radio Pirate Woman up in Galway, uh, where Margretta Darcy was having conversations with women in her kitchen. Uh, with the kind of makeshift radio antenna that was made by an anarchist from Wales. So we were kind of interested in like these alternative histories of like not having money, not having resources, not mm. being a man, also not being white, although both of us are white, uh, not being of a certain age. And how do we access these kind of clubs and spheres of knowledge? And we also realized after that kind of moment in our amateur radio training that there were zero accessible resources for people that don't have existing knowledge of radio engineering and physics Hmm. for how to set up a a diy satellite ground station hence why one of the first things we did was publish a how-to guide on public lab which was uh, targeted at non-specialists
0: oh okay yeah
2: yeah but lots to say about amateur radio. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we should say we also have many, many, um, although we have actually been trolled in amateur radio forums for uh, when our work gets posted. There have been a couple times that, or more than a few times, where um, people have written quite derogatory comments about our work uh, from mm-hmm. within the amateur radio sphere, which plugs into a long history of amateur radio policing its borders against female incursions. And there are various reasons for that. Um, but we also have many dear collaborators who are radio amateurs, many people, for example, Bill Lyles, whose call sign is NQ6Z, who is an uh, amazing friend of ours who, for example, proofreads our how-to guides and gives us technical backup advice when we need it. And so we have many allies in that space as well as potential issues.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah! Wow, uh, it's uh, it's. Uh, I'm sure it's a lot of valuable information for a lot of people dealing with uh, similar uh, situations.
0: Yeah, and you you know you're in deep when you've started recognizing or sorry memorizing other people's call signs.
2: <laughs> well, this is important because I'm. It's specific also because Bill identifies very closely with his call sign. As as yeah. many people in that sphere do. And it's it's really, call signs are very interesting because they are a unique signifier of someone's radio-based practice. And yeah. I'm not sure if you're familiar with QRZ.com, but it's this online database of call signs and mm. radio equipment that you can search someone by call sign and find their, you know, radio shack in Canada where they have mm. like a certain antenna and a certain amplifier and a certain transmission. Like, it's really interesting how call signs become so much like kind of tags of uh, particular technical spheres of knowledge and situated relationships to geography in place as well.
1: Yeah. Um, because
2: call signs, the letters and the numbers refer to your country that you're in and um, even like what level of skill you have. And so it's fascinating.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. They become a whole parallel identity for a lot of people. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So
2: hence why important. I have a call <laughs> sign. Mine is a Mike 6 India Oscar Romeo.
0: Okay. Let, let the record show. Exactly.
2: If, we, if I encounter you on the on the air then yeah, you'll know. Yeah. It's me. No way.
0: <laughs> well maybe that's a, a good kind of a switch over to, to talk about uh, this kind of uh, art and science overlap more generally because uh, before we started talking uh, before we started recording we were talking a little bit about this article that you had written a while back about these kinds of questions of like the the relationships of art and science but also about how your thinking has changed since you wrote that article yeah it was uh, dryden goodwin's breathe art science and the invisible uh so yeah and maybe you want to talk a little bit about that
2: of course yeah this is interesting as we were saying earlier because it's a project or it's a piece of writing i uh i did in what i perceived to be a very long time ago so um Mm -hmm. it's interesting to be reminded of that work but that was um in a way that was my first ever academic work first ever and it wasn't even in like a kind of like
0: oh wow academic
2: journal that was like the first thing i ever wrote for any kind of uh sciency or uh, academic sphere so i was a master student at the time at oxford Mm. and i was um doing a research project with a group called invisible dust based in london and they're a non group that curates art science um, collaborations and specifically collaborations around issues of air atmosphere weather and the climate crisis so they had commissioned artist dryden goodwin to work with air quality scientist frank kelly who was at King's College London, to have a series of discussions and imagine a public artwork together. And out of those discussions um, came Dryden really realizing, I guess, uh, about the vulnerability of his five-year-old son breathing the air of London. And so what emerged was a a gigantic installation that was an animation of Dryden's five-year-old son's body breathing. And it was projected on an eight meter high screen on the roof of St. Thomas's Hospital, which is, um, if you know London, across from Westminster Bridge and the Houses of Parliament and Big Ben. So it's a very, very... Charge space,
1: mm-hmm. and
2: for I think it was about a month and a half in the October November months. Every evening from eight PM until I think like one in the morning, when it was very very dark, this installation would get activated, and you'd see this like really fragile, glitchy, kind of patterny, um, drawn child's body breathing. Although it was kind of hard to tell, even was it child at times. Um, and so I spent every evening on that bridge. Um, collecting data as a dutiful master student uh doing my research so trying to interview people about what they perceived about the work because it was also work that of course being in public space had no plaque no curator's text no framing exhibition no white cube around it right so it was just mm. very much out there in the city um and what i learned was after much trouble because it's yeah doing research in the cold and the dark where people are running across to and from work is a very demoralizing experience. Um, but what I learned was that people were actually breathing with the breathing image um, and some were actually hyperventilating because they were noticing that their bodies were breathing too fast because the image would begin to breathe at a very high rate at some points. Mm. Um, as a result of that artwork there was actually a hearing in the house of commons where both artists dryden and frank spoke and the public was invited to share stories of air quality issues in london so that whole constellation for me was very very um compelling that you had an art science collaboration a public artwork that was causing embodied visceral uh, reactions and people. And then there was this political forum created in this, in the highest seat of power in the UK. Hmm. And I was there in that meeting recording, um, what people were saying. And they were talking about their children's route to work and their uh their their child asthma. And this was actually before, of course, Ella Casey Deborah um sadly passed away. Who was a she was a nine-year-old girl who lived in Lewisham and is the first person whose death has air pollution on their death certificate as the cause of death because her asthma attacks were linked to severe levels of pollution in London, which are actually illegal by a world health standard. So um, long story short, like I think that was my first like avenue or portal into art-science collaboration. So that article, I think, was my first attempt to grapple with what political outcomes can come out of art-science collaboration and what possibilities for, I guess, public forums and public processing and public collective thinking can emerge through art-science. But it was very early days. So after that project, I... Um, it was a kind of a stepping stone toward a PhD project for me. I became fascinated in how artists were experimenting with issues of air atmosphere, uh, kind of broadly defined, whether that was like data on air or that was experimenting with sculptures in the air or traveling through the air. So, um, mm-hmm. I worked very hard to get invited to the studio of Thomas Ceresino, who's a Berlin based artist who, um, when I arrived at the studio in 2013, had a, a small to medium sized studio team of about 15 people. Uh, when I left in 2016 at the end of that year, I think had about 80 people working in his studio. Um, so I, I spent basically four years, um, working, uh, alongside other people of the studio, collaborating very closely with Tomas, basically every, every week. Mm. Um, and being part of this very intense, Material and architectural making studio and Tomasa's work for those who don't know um, for many, many decades he's been thinking about an idea of cloud cities that are floating pneumatic platforms that can sustain human life in the atmosphere and um, ideas of moving through the atmosphere that don't require fossil fuels. So mm. he initiated a project called Aerocene, which is um, also a, a global network of people who make launch and fly solar-powered balloon-like sculptures to kind of query the intersections of advanced capitalism, fossil fuel extraction, and global air mobility. So how could we move in the air differently if, for example, we weren't burning huge amounts of fuel to fly heavy steel Objects from A to B, but rather we're kind of following jet streams and learning about winds and like moving like spiders do in the atmosphere, which is like following currents and things and making their own kites and balloon structures. So, um, I guess like through, through an intensive period then as an ethnographer, so as a geographer, which I am, I'm a technically a geographer and ethnographer in. This insanely active and incredible studio space where there was everything from natural scientists to architects to, um, you know, uh, practitioners to do with uh, balloon design um, to uh, book specialists and research research uh, specialists. Uh, I, I got a little bit more kind of situated and tactical and practical understanding about what art science collaboration really means. And Mm -hmm. I think what I learned is a lot about how um, to be tactful, uh, how there are a lot of potential issues in art science collaboration. Um, There are potential, there are vast potentials for exciting ideas to be generated and exciting um, projects to emerge, which is exactly what Tomas does, and I think his studio is, is really good at that. Um, but that there are also moments where, um, the translation of knowledge, and I'm not talking about, I'm not putting this on Tomas, but like the translation of, of knowledge can be extractive. Mm. Um, things can, there can be power relations at work. Um, too often are artists put in the position of communicating and uh, decorating science rather than actually informing the knowledge production process. So I I guess I learned to be more critical about the ideal of art science collaboration from being situated within it so Mm -hmm. intensively
1: Mm -hmm. for four Mm -hmm. years. So the timescale is that first you had this encounter in London, this art and science collaboration that made you write this uh, article. And Later than you came to Berlin to work in the studio and to to contribute to that project for like four years.
2: Yes, which I had not I had not anticipated. So I, I I had got this PhD scholarship and I I went to Berlin thinking I would spend three to six months doing doing field work, like a good social scientist in the field. Right, this thing called the field, which is like different than where we write and where Mm. we live, which is a, I've of course learned is a total abstraction and then come back to Oxford and sit in the beautiful libraries of Oxford and write my beautiful PhD thesis. And of course, when I arrived in the studio of Tomas, he said, you know, I'd rather I was the first PhD researcher he had sort of invited to the studio. And um, his first kind of message to me was that he would have, would prefer that I not be a fly on the wall but rather that I um, interact with him and his team and collaborate with him and his team. And that was the most exciting proposal for me, really. And one thing led to another, and then I got really embedded. And um, we ended up designing a curriculum for teaching art to architects at the Technical University of Braunschweig for two years. Um, And I was very involved in aerocene from the very beginning Mm. and uh, traveled with Tomas and his team to the top of the Andes in Bolivia to launch aerocene sculptures. We went to Turkey with our students. We went all across Europe. So there were like so many adventures over those four years that um, I use the word lure a lot. So I think I got very like like drawn in and like pulled and moved and lured by a set of practices that I found very rich mm, and alluring. Mm. Um, and since 2017, uh, when I've gotten my um, permanent job in the geo humanities at the University of London, um, that's when a kind of different phase of work then began. Mm, mm. Mm,
0: mm. And was it a practical thing that just you you got this job in London, and then so you're you're time working in the studio in Berlin kind of by necessity came to an end and you were making a big switch?
2: Yes. So I, um, like any person finishing their PhD, was thinking about what I was going to do next.
0: Mm, What comes afterwards?
2: I actually had a a pretty uh, powerful idea that I could be um, like a kind of underground noise and radio artist based in Berlin and you know, part-time curator. And there was a whole imaginary of that, that I, I would, I was equally interested in, I guess, but then a really interesting, um, kind of needle in a haystack job came up at what's called the center for the geo humanities at Royal Holloway in London. And, um, I I got this job and it's a permanent job, uh, which is very rare in academia that one gets a permanent job out of a PhD. Mm. And I was very, 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 very lucky and uh, fortunate for that. And since then, I've been based in London and am part of a kind of really rich set of scholars working across geography and the arts and humanities to think about how art can inform geographical and environmental questions. And that's where um, the current work that I was describing earlier, so things around open weather and imaging the planet and like weather sensing and satellites and feminism like that's the kind of sphere in which all of that has emerged recently mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well, you can always uh tap back to your
1: underground noise artist' self and
2: visit berlin and <laughs> you know <laughs> which you... I'm not sure if you follow like u k academia but we are we've been on strike um yeah. because conditions in u k academia are not 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 wonderful and um so, you know, well, I'm not saying that it's going to be sustainable to be an underground noise artist in Berlin, but uh, <laughs> you <laughs> never know, fun. you never know, you know, what is sustainable? I think that's right. like a, such a good question, like, because, yeah, the you know, living in London uh, and paying all the money we pay for rent and inflation and our cost of living and the precarity of living in London, that, of course, is taxing. So you have to depend on like some kind of uh, high paying job. Um mm-hmm uh so sustainable can i'm you know what i mean like depending on where you are where you're situated i think it depends what you're able to to make your life look like and um, i'm not i guess i'm not like um crossing out other models of living that aren't maybe like situated in such an Mm. intensive capitalist and resource-centered way of life yeah Mm. yeah
1: i guess sustainable is also a question of. choices
2: yeah and like i'd be curious of the choices that you've made as well i mean you are practicing internationally renowned artists and you're based in berlin and yeah how's it how's how's the sustaining (laughs) of your life Mm.
0: (laughs) up until a couple of years ago i was working part-time in a bar okay so you know like it can be very practical it's uh not necessarily all that glamorous it's just kind of yeah you just you do what's needed to kind of make it possible to do the things that you really want to do or that you're kind of trying to create the time and space to to make possible yeah
1: uh, yeah i think a lot of the the typical berlin scheme for some people or for me uh is the you know working part-time job for money making for you know the for the sustainability part and then being lucky enough to find the kind of the job that you can do in little hours. So you have plenty of time on the side to to do the artwork. And then also hoping that the moment when something clicks, and suddenly you have more, um, you get more support or more means to do the artwork, you can kind of quiet down the other things that you then uh, would prefer not to focus so much on. And then it's this constant riding waves of now I need more money, now I need more time, now I need more money, now I need more time. (laughs) It sounds nice. Yeah, it has its charm.
0: (laughs) It it also is the kind of the thing where, you know, we've both lived in Berlin long enough, I think, to have seen it start, you know, to, to have seen various eras of change within that time. And, you know, I I try very hard not to turn into kind of like someone who sits there in the corner saying, oh, the old days were much better or anything like that. Um, But it is something where, yeah, you see, you see the city changing, you see the kinds of like what becomes possible changing over time. And yeah, that has its own way of affecting how you make your own decisions I mean, actually, we, we were just talking earlier on today about uh, I went to an event just last night in a venue that seems to kind of only exist because there's some kind of tech company money that is flowing in somehow in a way that's a little bit uh, vague and obscure and like o- over which a veil is somehow being drawn and... Uh, yeah I, i was surprised by the strength of my own kind of reaction towards that of feeling this sort of almost like allergic reaction thinking this this should not be the kind of the place where where culture is presumed to be made or where culture is presumed to begin in some kind of abstract way um but yeah, I mean, you know, that's that's a whole other discussion, maybe. <laughs> how the city changes.
2: But sometimes we have to compromise, don't we? Because we can't have uh we can't have the the clean cut, like fully uh artist-led art space, culture program all the time. And uh, in Oak Mother we think a lot about compromise as like one of our feminist ethics um or ways of working, because for example, you know, we constantly critique Google Earth as this you know, smooth globe that we're trying to break away from and challenge and, and propose an alternative image to, but we depend on Google Sheets and Google Drive for all of the data and the open weather archive. So all of the things that people upload to our archive is powered by the freely available infrastructure of Google Sheets. So, you know, like I, I'm i kind of interested in thinking a lot about like, you know, where do compromises need to happen and, and where, where are they generative and they are um, important? And mm, um, but I mm. fully, I, I would probably have had a similar allergic reaction to the kind of space that you're talking about. So,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. C- can you tell us a bit more about this? About this feeling of being kind of uh, of sitting with the compromising, so to say.
2: Yeah. So I, uh, both me and Sophie actually are very inspired by someone called Max Leboeuf,
1: mm-hmm.
2: who is a feminist indigenous science studies scholar based in newfoundland in canada i'm not sure if you've come across their work before but they wrote a a really wonderful book called pollution is colonialism Mm -hmm. and in the book they talk about the establishment of what they call the civic laboratory for environmental action research or clear which is a Um, laboratory, a feminist and decolonial laboratory for doing pollution science on waterways in Newfoundland, but specifically in collaboration with indigenous communities. And Max talks quite a lot about the need for compromise, um, especially when you're engaged in something like feminist decolonial science. So for instance, um, there's a particular metric of measuring water based plastic or water-based pollution that the technical name escapes me now, but is like the kind of industry standard for measuring pollution that the, you know, the kind of criteria for that are fundamentally colonial because it, um, assumes access or assumes the right to pollute actually. So at the Mm. core of this like scientific, uh, tool is the right to pollute and the right to pollute specifically on indigenous territories. Um, so, so Max as an indigenous feminist decolonial scientist fundamentally disagrees with this scientific term and tool. Mm. But to publish scientific work that is read by the scientific community or that is legible in policy or can be used in reports, they have to use or they, they ended up deciding to use this particular tool. So mm. I guess what I'm saying is that, um, in developing open weather, Sophie and I um we tried to find ways in which our feminist principles, of which there are ten, um, in something called the Open Weather Feminist Handbook, um, how they really drive our work. And we very were very, very careful about how those principles not only theoretically but also practically drive our work, but we're also very careful of um being exclusive. And finding ways where we do need to compromise on these feminist principles, because otherwise work wouldn't be done.
0: Mm, mm. Mm. So a lot of the work that you're doing also involves uh, considering air as a medium. Um, And uh, yeah, maybe you can also tell us a bit about that.
2: Sure. And I think that might also relate to the theme of your series, which is repatterning. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which could be interesting. So in the first project I talked about, which involved thinking about air quality and children's lung health in London, that's where I began to get really interested in air as a medium, but specifically through an idea of um, surfacing and surfacing of the body in the urban environment. And I was really drawn by the work of Janice Jeffries, who has a small chapter in a book called Inventive Methods on what she calls pattern patterning. And it's about the 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 kind of degrees of freedom or possibility that are that are uh, enabled by something like the constraint of a pattern. And so I guess we could also link this to like to Liz and Guitari difference and repetition, right? So what what kind of qualities of difference or emergence or um otherness emerge in the constraint of a pattern and so what i saw with Dryden goodwin drawing air in his five-year-old son's body breathing was really an engagement with the patterning of air mm. into and through the body and the and breath as a pattern that is also patterning so breath is something that is unconscious it's a kind of rhythmic repetitive thing that we do without thinking about it but the, the kind of ways in which breath And the, and the rhythms of breath, when they change, can produce quite affective emotional intensities and changes for us. So the speeds of breath increasing can really make us feel anxious. Um, or like we're hyperventilating, as one of my interviewees spoke about. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so I guess, uh, my fascination with, with air emerged with that idea of like the breath as a pattern and as a, as a, platform for like novelty and difference but also the way that air you know uh patterns into through the pores of the body through the holes through the gaps and that we're not like kind of envelopes or bubbles of bodies walking around in urban space like sealed containers We're actually very porous to urban space Mm -hmm. so from there um i've uh in my phd my entire phd was about the role of air and atmosphere in the work of thomas serracino but specifically um, how air and atmosphere can lure us um, and how artworks that are taking place in air and atmosphere can maybe pull us into novel forms of political and collective awareness. So how can the envelopment and conjuring and slow solar powered f- flight of a membrane of an aerocene sculpture, enlarge our experiences of air in ways that we didn't have before? How can mm-hmm. the making of a membrane that can be inflated by the sun, you know, through like literally the patches of plastic throwaway bags through the process of making that membrane that should be a home for air and sitting inside that membrane and breathing with that membrane? How do we then get experiences of the collectivity of breathing together? How do, um, the, the kind of flights in the air of non-human species, like social spiders that whose, whose webs um, are like s- strands of silk woven into the air and the wind weaves them into gigantic nets and the whole colony is, of spiders takes off from the tree and flies together over vast distances. How do the kind of sculptures of non-human species tell us about air? Um, so that, those were kind of my, my, mm-hmm. my key questions and that really has informed a lot of the work I'm doing now. So I currently have uh, a quite um, major research grant from the arts and humanities research council in the uk it's called advancing feminist and creative methods for sensing air and atmosphere and that really is developing both open weather in mm. its pattern and patterning of weather systems through the creation of alternative weathers through the creation of our index of weather systems that is the open weather archive um, through to a project i'm doing in buenos aires with attaching diy air pollution monitoring devices to, to aerocene sculptures Um, kind of sensing air in uh, an underserved community called Vigia Inflammable Inflammable, or the flammable town. And that's very much not led by me, but it's led by people on the ground there like Deborah Swiston, who's an anthropologist um, Mm -hmm. and Joaquin Escura, who is a cartographer and rain specialist and several other people who are kind of local to Buenos Aires. So I suppose my answer uh, is that um, the ways that air conditions and patterns life And the ways in which I saw that happening in the first artistic project I was involved in continued to be a core concern in my work.
1: Mm.
2: And I think will be.
0: (laughs) On into the future.
2: (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) So that was our talk with Sasha Engelmann. Our website is at repatterning.xyz, which is where you can get links and info about everything we talked with Sasha about.
0: If you like, you can also take a look at the Patreon for Repatterning, which is at patreon.com/repatterning. Uh, if you might like to help us out, you can do that over there. There aren't any exclusives or extras or anything like that. It's all totally voluntary, and everyone gets the same material either way. So that's hopefully fairly clear but if you'd like to help out you can and we're very happy for any support that we might receive
1: see you next time
0: bye-bye